Leave me alone. You're going to sign this check, Jerry. You're going to sign it right now. Gerald Reagan. G-E-R-A-L-D. That's not my name. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter Death's waiting room if you dare. And welcome back to Strange Highways. I am Paul. And I'm Kevin. And we hope that you guys survived uh, Maple Street and you're back with us for this wonderful episode. Yeah, and hopefully you got enough night milk. Uh, yeah, I got <laughs> your night that milk joke in. into this week. I, I, yes, hashtag night milk. Pass along. Uh, so <laughs> I, um, I did some sky looking and drank some night milk, so I'm, I'm ready to go uh, for this episode. This is uh, season one, episode 23, A World of Difference. Uh, air date uh, March 11th, 1960. Uh, number one film. Uh, it's a film called Home from the Hill. Uh, 150 minute family drama. Sounds wonderful. Didn't do oh. too well after that. Didn't make its money back. Just want to mention that George Papard is in it, and that was Hannibal from the A Team. So I thought that was worth mentioning that he yeah. really liked it when a family plan comes together. Yeah, man, <laughs> that does not sound like fun, though. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't. Uh, and the number one song, still theme from a summer place, Percy Faith is Orchestra. Uh, I uh, was trying to find, again, some stuff that happened around the state. Only thing I could find that was just interesting, not really tied to what we're going to talk about, is on the 13th, so two days later, uh, author Ian Fleming was a, a, as a dinner, de- dinner guest to uh, future President Kennedy, and was describing uh, to the people there about some humorous, humorous suggestions on how James Bond would get rid of Fidel Castro. Uh, CIA officials uh, was there, and they started writing down these ideas, and some of them they actually tried later. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I just started reading uh, Dr. No again the other day, so... Um. I'd, interesting little reference there i just like the idea that he's like ian flavis is probably just getting smashed just mentioning like wouldn't it be funny if we could make his beard fall out and they're all like we gotta write that down we gotta make that happen <laughs> you know that's, yeah. oh that's funny so so yeah, yeah i had uh i had nothing for the state i couldn't find anything of uh note um should we get it in a cast yeah let's just do it cool all right. This episode is directed by Ted Post, uh, as we mentioned on the last episode. This is his <laughs> first appearance on the show. He does three other episodes. And uh, beyond this, he did uh, one of my favorite westerns, Hang 'em High with Clint Eastwood. Uh, another beneath the uh, reference of Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Uh, I think you talked about the baby last week. <laughs> yeah, which uh, did we did we talk about the plot of the baby? Uh, if not, I just uh, mentioned real quick. Uh, this movie is now shattered in my brain, and I only saw it like a year and a half ago. It's, it's a social worker going to a house to tend to a family that has uh, a, a male child that supposedly is developmentally disabled, and he's like 20, 
and you get there and you find out this this is a full grown child. Like they they keep calling it the baby, and it's a full grown man wearing diapers in this large adult sized crib, and it's just the mother keeps saying that the baby's not grown up. And you begin to wonder if it's that she's keeping him in that state or that there's something else going on. And that's messed up. What's more messed up yeah. is that the original audio for the, the movie in which he made all the baby noises, that part of the audio got lost. So in the release that I saw, all the baby noises were dubbed in with real baby noises. So seeing a large adult male in a crib making cooing noises and all the noises that a baby makes, just I couldn't handle it. My brain was just like, I'm out. I'm done. It was uh, a really weird movie. Weird movie. Yeah. And then uh, beyond that, he did Magnum Force, one of the Dirty Harry films, and uh, had to save it for last. Good Guys Were Black with Chuck Norris. And one episode of a TV series from 1977 called Future Cop. I have no idea what it is, but it sounds badass. (laughs) Nice. Um, Yeah, this episode is the second teleplay for uh, Twilight Zone by Richard Matheson. So... um, but yeah, we'll we'll talk about the story as we get to it. Yeah, and then the music is done by Nathan Van Cleve. We mentioned him before, the one that uses the theremin that we've had in um, Perchance to Dream, and really good weird music, you know. And like he he's in full force here too. It was good yeah. music. Yeah, great score. Not quite sure if it fit this episode. Would agree with but, that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I I definitely enjoyed it though. Um, all right, and then the cast we have Howard Duff playing Arthur Curtis and Jerry Reagan. <laughs> More on that later. So this is only Twilight Zone episode. Uh, he was also in some TV show from the 1987 called Werewolf. I was going to mention that. Do you you don't remember that? No. I, I, no. I, it must just be because like I'm a little, little older than you. This is whenever Fox... It was around the time that it was launching to be like its own network, and it didn't have five days worth of programming. So it would have like, some stuff on like the weekends and then a couple things during the week. And I remember mm. watching Werewolf, and it creeped me out as a kid. And it was like this guy who, he was bitten by a werewolf, and the whole thing is him trying to track down the head of the bloodline. And he had a pentagram on his hand. And then as like, it got closer to the full moon, that would be more and more developed. And as he was about to change it, it started bleeding at the points. It was really creepy. Nice. Well, I uh, I downloaded the whole season, so I'm going <laughs> <laughs> to check it out. It's probably but I liked it. Yeah, nice. Um then we have David White playing as uh, Brinkley, who was in two episodes of Twilight Zone, and Mr. Tate on Bewitched, yeah. Dick York's boss. And also, he did his early work at the Cleveland Playhouse, I found out, and he was in oh, one cool. of the greatest movies of all time, Brewster's Millions. <laughs> all right. Uh, then we have Frank <laughs> Maxwell as Marty Fisher, uh, only Twilight Zone, wasn't really too familiar with anything else he did, unless you have anything. Uh, that was Marty Fisher, you said? Yeah, yeah, Frank uh, Maxwell. Yeah, I um, the, some of these people I was trying to go through and I couldn't find much. Only thing I got on here was uh, uh, two two people uh, I want to mention is uh, Gail Kobe who played Sally, uh, first of three episodes on the uh, Twilight Zone and went on to become a producer of the People's Court. So the, her she made her impact by being producing that show, and I thought that interesting. was interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and then uh, lastly, the other one I'm going to talk about, Eileen Ryan, who plays Nora Reagan. Um, actually, is Sean Penn's mother. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, and spoiler, probably my favorite character in this episode. Um, she had a pretty sparse career. It seemed like she did a lot of stuff in the 50s and the 60s and then dropped off and 
did maybe like two or three things in the 70s and 80s and then came back and was in feast i am sam magnolia benny and june like did all these great films in the 90s and 2000s yeah so there's a quote from madonna when she was married to sean penn she told the press my mother-in-law is the only woman i've ever met who i find truly intimidating so I don't know where that quote I could came see from. That. <laughs> yeah, right. You got to sign the check, with this Jerry. Performance. Got to sign that check. <laughs> and the other person I want to mention real quick, uh, his name is Robert McCord. I could not tell you who he is visually on the screen. He played one of the camera crew people on the set. Only reason I want to mention him is because he was in 32 episodes of The Twilight Zone, but always in the background and never credited with anything. So, like, he's our MVP. We just ne- we don't know who he is. I'm going to have to do some research on him. <laughs> yeah, I, I that might find a takeaway for yeah. people listening to the show. We're going to we're going to let them know who he is. And then they got to tell us which episode. Already forgot his name. Who yeah. is he? <laughs> Robert McCord. You guys find every episode he's in. We'll give you a prize. I don't know what that is, but you got to identify him. It's like finding Waldo. You got to find Robert McCord in all 32 episodes of The Twilight Zone. That's a lot of work. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's For a it. non-existent prize, that's a lot of work. <laughs> hey, you know, I mean, you know, if people want it, they can they can try. Uh, and I, my hat's off to you. You get my respect. That's my that's the prize. My respect if you find all thirty-two Robert McCords in the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's let's. I, you might lose my respect if you oh, uh, okay. spend the time doing that, but. Well, you know, just what you got to weigh it. Like, who's, whose respect do you want more? Probably Kevin's. So you probably don't want, yeah, anyway. So, no. all right, let's just get to, let's get this early. You're looking at a tableau of reality. Things of substance, of physical material, a desk, a window, a light. These things exist and have dimension. Now, this is Arthur Curtis, age 36, who also is real. He has flesh and blood, muscle and mind. But in just a moment, we will see how thin a line separates that which we assume to be real with that manufactured inside of a mind. There you go. And there's that weird horn in the middle that uh, sounded kind of Star Wars-y. I don't know what was going on there, but that's that's your intro. Yeah, so that that sets you up perfectly, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's so vague. It sounds pretty. So vague. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I guess we'll get into the plot here. So you got Arthur Curtis, who is a was he a lawyer or just a nondescript businessman? I they may have mentioned what his 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 job is. I didn't re- I didn't remember. I just know that he has clearly a secretary and he has a nice office with some really cool sliding doors. That's, All right, yeah. we'll just say businessman. Businessman uh, in general. Uh, yeah, so he goes into his office and uh, he's finishing up some work and planning a vacation out to California, I think it was. Um, sits down at his desk and his phone's not working. And uh, he gets up to uh, see what's going on and he hears a voice behind him that yells, Cut. And he turns around and sees a whole crew, uh, production, movie production crew behind him uh, waiting for him to. <laughs> do something i don't know there's like a good 30 second pause there yeah and it's uh and when i went back to watch this episode a second time to pick up uh, audio and, and uh clips i uh wanted to see if that was one shot of him entering his office and sitting down at the the, the desk and turning to the phone because you could see the wall behind kind of behind him as he sits down yeah. uh and then but um but they make that move seamlessly whenever they zoom in on him and then then turn it around to show the crew and it's 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 definitely one shot it's impressive 
Uh, it's 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 slick, and it's like one of those things that like it happens so normally that I didn't think about it. I thought there was an edit in there, and there was not. So credit to to post for that. It was it was a cool yeah. shot. Yeah, one of my favorite things about this episode is that beginning. Um, from there on, though, he's confused, obviously, because uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's not every day you realize you're on a film set when you think you're living your life, and uh, he's trying to tell everyone that he's not this actor, which is Jerry Reagan is that character's name, um, and everybody just thinks he's going crazy. They tell him go take a break. So he goes over to the phone and he's trying to call the operator. He calls the operator trying to call his house phone just to see if he could talk to his wife or just to make sure that his house was still there. <laughs> yeah. Um, did, did you notice the, the thing that the director said to him at that point where he's like, he's like, who are you? He's like, I'm just your friendly neighborhood movie director. Like that was I, I heard that I phrase. And I'm so. like, I'm like, wait, that's that's um, Spider-Man says just your neighbor, friendly neighbor at Spider-Man. So I was like, is that like a, a turn of phrase? I was trying to find where that that origin came from. I couldn't pin it down. So it makes me wonder if like this is just something that was put here. And then it kind of I, I don't know if that influenced Stan Lee later, but it was it was a really specific phrasing that had nothing to do with the episode. It just kind of caught me off guard. You know, I thought that was like I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I would assume that that was probably just like a turn of phrase at that time. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. So, so after he realizes that there is no, uh, of course, there is no phone at the location he's trying to call, and so he freaks out and he runs out of the studio. When he goes outside, he almost gets run over by a car, which turns out to be his uh, ex-wife. Yeah, or, or we learn very shortly after. <laughs> Um, who is played by Eileen Ryan. Uh, his ex-wife's name is Nora Reagan. But you get the vibe from the, the crew and everybody that this isn't his first time having like issues on set. Like, it's yeah, kind of, it's kind everyone kind of, you yeah. see people kind of like sighing and just like, <sighs> you know, and just kind of looking more annoyed than uh, worried about him. Because, I mean, if somebody had that uh, <laughs> that kind of mental break or assumedly that kind of mental break, most people would be fairly concerned about that, but everyone just seems more so annoyed with him. It just seemed like the the, the newest thing that he came up with for why he can't work today, you know? Yeah, and, which, kind which of kind of leads, was, yeah. uh, as we get to the end, It's uh, there's some uh, ambiguity with it, and uh, that kind of leads me to what I think is going on in this, but I'm jumping ahead now, so <laughs> we'll get to it when we get to it. Uh, but uh, I want to point out, though, even like, so the ex-wife, uh, Nora, uh, who is very um, angry is probably a good way to say it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> she doesn't really think twice about like you know his safety. This is more like just make sure he's still around till till our divorce is all settled. I was surprised that this was a plot point and a character because the idea of divorce being public was kind of taboo, you know. And like, and also I know I know it's Hollywood, but you didn't really hear of divorce that often at this time. And I thought that was an interesting choice. Yeah, like you said, it could have been a statement uh, Serling was trying to make about Hollywood lifestyles and that kind of a thing. Um, well, yeah, because yeah. she was angry, but I didn't really feel like, I mean, her some of her actions later are a bit like, okay, you need to calm down just a second. But if considering what she views of her, her ex-husband, I don't think she is out of place to be frustrated with him. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. Um, I just, as opposed to, this, she could have been just the shrill, what did, what did the one guy call her? Um 
Uh, a harpy. A harpy, yeah. Uh, David yeah. Wake, uh, Brinkley called her a harpy. I don't know if that's necessarily the, the correct characterization of her. I mean, I know she wanted money, but I think it was more like she wanted her life. You know, and yeah, that, you know. we we don't get enough to really make an assumption. Uh, That's true. Whether or not what what kind of human being she is, you know. <laughs> so, but I I did enjoy her character because I mean the main crux of this episode is him trying to convince people that he is Arthur Curtis, and it, it's one of those episodes again where that is the point. And they're going to drive it home in every scene. Is That's the main concern. But I enjoyed that they put a character like Nora in there. Because uh, it, it added just like a little bit more conflict to something that was ultimately pretty simple. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and kind of like a sense of urgency. Because, I, I mean, she is kind of grating at certain points. Just yelling at him and trying to get him to sign checks and stuff. Um and it, it does kind of make you nervous. Like, like I was physically like kind of almost annoyed, but just frustrated with it. And it just added a little bit more conflict, like I said, to uh, this episode. Well, I just like that she, like, whenever you try to tell her, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not Jerry, I'm Arthur. And then she's, he's like, I'm borrowing your car and then show you I live at this house. It's like, you can tell she's annoyed, but she's just like, okay, I'm waiting for him to be done with this game. You know, she yeah. she never yeah. really I'll, I'll play along yeah. until you're done. Yeah. Yeah. So then they go they go to his his address. And, <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. And he sees a little girl in the front yard. It's supposed to be his daughter. And he goes up to try to talk to her. And then the little girl has a freak out. And well, she, yeah, because yeah. he you shook her by both shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would do it. That would do it. You know, um, and then uh, realizing that like uh, she didn't know who he was, and then the lady comes out that you know it basically is like what's going on, and they just drive off. And the little girl um, has one of the worst lines delivered in a long time for me. Um, just pay attention to the episode; you're going to hear it. Um, but he starts to realize that hey, nothing where I think I'm supposed to be living that's not there. My family's not there, and then it just he's starting to to, to crack up more about what he thinks is reality versus what everybody's telling him is reality. Yeah. Yeah. So from there on, uh, from then on, we go back to what would be uh, Jerry's house, uh, not Arthur's. Hopefully, this isn't way too confusing going through this. <laughs> this is one where I think you definitely have to watch the episode first before listening to this. Yeah. Um, so they go back to Jerry's house and uh, they meet up with, I assume, it, I thought when they said they were going to have to call Brinkley, it was the producer of the movie that he was supposedly working on. Yeah. But I think it was supposed to be his agent. Yeah, I think it was his agent because he was trying to cover for him and trying to, it's just like he had, he had a vested interest in his success, but also personally, which I don't think a, a, um, a film producer would necessarily care about you know the how is he healthy enough to act let's get him out there you know so yeah I think he's yeah. more the closest thing to a friend he I, has in the production at the beginning they said we don't have we don't want to have to call brinkley again and I, I i figured that was either like the financier or the producer or something but uh yeah i guess i guess it would be his agent um so uh he tells him uh pretty much uh where were we yeah so he's he's trying to figure out what's going on with him and um Brinkley's asking him questions and Nora's trying to get him to sign a check and still yelling at him, digging through his desk. <laughs> yeah. Which was which was awesome. Um she's just like throwing stuff out of his desk and everything. Yeah. Uh, and, th and that's what I mean. There's just like this sense of 
uh, almost claustrophobia in this. It's just like everything, everybody's closing in on him and it, he feels so alone, which is, I guess, uh, something that uh, we've seen. This episode kind of gave me the feel of uh, a disappearing act. Uh, what the what episode was that when the sky opened and when the sky opened that was the matheson story yeah yeah matheson wrote the short story disappearing act with that episode is based on um i was definitely getting vibes from that episode so it was something that i felt before while watching this i was getting a uh, 16 millimeter shrine like reverse of this about like everybody's telling him who he is and he's like no that's not me where she was trying to tell everybody who she was it's like that's not who you are now I was yeah. getting kind of a weird, like but, that, that, that sense of identity. Yeah, I was going to say it's another episode where we're dealing with uh, loss of identity or identity crisis, which, I mean, we've seen already maybe 10 times <laughs> since we've started <laughs> doing this show. Yeah. So it, it was something that uh, it, as soon as you realize what's going on, I was kind of checking out already just because it's a subject that's just been already in the first season almost done to death. Yeah, I like um so there is a nice uh, nice bit here right before he pat like he cracks and I think he passes out. There's just a nice silent like uh look on Brinkley and Nora. Like they share like kind of like a look to each other as Arthur is starting to lose his mind. And it was a nice beat for an episode that was full of people yelling at each other. Um, so like, at least it gave a little bit more human moment than when Arthur clearly, cause when you have a mental breakdown, all you want to do is take a nap. You know, that's the one thing yeah. you do. Um, and then, and then you wake up with like a damp rag and then you're good again, you know? Um, but, but yeah, it seemed yeah. like they realized that maybe he's not kidding about this Yeah, and that there might be something actually wrong with him rather than I'm just going to play along. <laughs> yeah. So then like when he wakes up, uh, Brinkley's telling him like, you know, confronting him again about this identity, and he's like, and he, he brings the script out, which uh, is a nice touch, saying everything that you think you are is written here in the character descriptions of this script, and he mm-hmm. rolls through it, and um, I like that. Um, just real quick, he describes Arthur's wife uh, in the script as a charming young woman, typical of the efficient breed that which can manage a house and family. Jesus, <laughs> I had to stop and write that word for word down. I'm like, is that why he just described the housewife? Um, that's a that's a. Uh, it, it really sounds like they're describing a uh, a racing horse or something. Yeah, typical <laughs> like, of the Jesus. efficient breed. Yeah, um, <laughs> but but Brinkley describes uh, Jerry different time, different yeah. time. <laughs> but um, so like uh, Brinkley describes Jerry as a sweet, unhappy man. And I think that's uh, interesting as he's trying to say, like, you know, I, clearly you're having some issues here and it's easy to say, yeah, of course you'd want to be Arthur because he is a family man and has a wife that cares about him and he has, like, you know, le- less worries, you know, uh, he's mm-hmm. trying to sympathize with him, but he's like, but this is in the script. This is not you. And that's why you can't remember anything past a certain point because that's all it's written here in terms of the character. Um, yeah. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting concept. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he, he finds out that he was, uh, he, he says, don't bother going back to the, uh, production cause the film is being canceled. And, uh, he realizes that he needs to get back to the set before they tear it down because that might be his only chance to really be Arthur Curtis again. So he races back there and, uh, he, uh, gets into the set and, he wakes up and he's back in his office 
And uh, I, I guess he doesn't really wake up, but he kind of puts his hand against his head as he's sitting at his desk again. And uh, there's like a little lighting effect and his wife walks in. And uh, but that's another they, nice uh, single take shot where he sits down at the desk because the, the yeah, there's uh, yeah, they kind of just like frame dim with, the yeah. lights for a second and then uh, you're back into it. So I, I don't know if they did it in reverse, there may have been a cut there, it didn't look as seamless as the first time. Well, because he had the frame that had the photo of his wife and child in it. Um, initially yeah, that was blank yeah. and as he sat down at the desk it was blank and then they zoomed they they pushed it on his face as he's holding like his hand against his face oh the so they changed. slipped the, I, I missed that that probably would have helped seeing that twice to catch that yeah so they, they basically they just kind of did the reverse of what they did previous but it was a nice <laughs> it was a, a nice effect you know and then you saw yeah. the photos again he realized he was in quote-unquote his reality um and then goes and talks to his secretary sees his wife and then he's like, "Oh, we got to leave right now. We got to go for our plans." And then this is this is the bit that's like this is the this is the Twilight Zone bit where he starts to walk out and he hears the people in Hollywood still disassembling the set as like a distant echo. And he's like, "Screw it, we got to get out of here," and just leaves. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, I, I, it was interesting. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it, it's interesting because Matheson does not give you an answer. There's no conclusion. I mean, it, there really isn't a twist. I guess I guess the twist was when you hear cut the first time because yeah. he gives you no answers and you can kind of make up your own decision which whether or not he is Arthur Curtis or Jerry Reagan. Well, and then even and, Brinkley comes to the set saying, "Hey, have you guys seen uh, you know, Jerry?" and everyone's like, "Oh, he was here a second ago." And then he can't find him on the set. And then, yeah. then it cuts to a scene of a jet airplane taking off, and then you have uh, uh, Serling's narration over the end of it, where it's like, so it's like, you're right, it's very, uh, ambiguous isn't the right word, unclear is the right word as to what was going on. Yeah, but I, I definitely think it was intentional. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I think Matheson wants you to uh, make your own assumptions with it, so... Um, I, I guess we can talk about that now. Um, <laughs> I I personally, like we said, uh, the film crew and everything being frustrated with Jerry Reagan. I feel like Jerry Reagan was the real person, and he was just trying to escape his life. And I, I I think that's the most simplistic way you can take it. Yeah, I mean, because clearly the production wasn't going well. He's had a troubled history of with alcohol or something. We don't know what entirely. His wife, yeah. his marriage is falling apart. His wife just wants his money. And, like, his whole world's ending. And there is the comfort of having a successful business, whatever it is that you do in California, and having a wife and child. And, like, that whole, like, I just, you, the power the, the power of willing away or willing yourself into that. You know, like, is it a mental break? Like, did he mentally just go away and they're going to find him later just wandering around saying his name's Arthur Curtis? <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the kind of thing uh, I don't think Matheson even knows the answer to it. I don't think this is an episode that has clues that if you keep watching it, you're going to catch what actually happened. I think there is no answer to what is actually happening. And I think that's a very Twilight Zone thing to do. And even the final uh, narration from uh, Serling, see if I can bring it up here. Um, uh, of course, I lost it. Yeah, take the case of Arthur Curtis, age 36. His departure was along a highway with an exit sign that reads, This Way to Escape, Arthur Curtis, en route to the Twilight Zone. And it's one of those things where... Uh, 
I, I think it's just sort of there, the ending. <laughs> you, you can change that name and put that at almost the end of every episode. You yeah. Know, like, it's with it, it, yeah. I mean. Yeah, it, it gives the answer of because Twilight Zone. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that's that's really what it comes down to. But I like that you can make your own assumptions with what was going on. So, um, as I was telling you before we started recording, this reminded me a lot more of, of a later work by Richard Matheson, a book he wrote called Bedtime Farewell. Sorry, Bedtime Return. Uh, 1975 that would become somewhere in time the christopher reeve oh, film okay. where, yeah did you see the film or are you... uh, a long time ago i have never read the book though yeah it, uh, it's the whole thing is that he he exists kind of in the late 70s uh um and there's an old woman that approaches christopher reeve saying you know come back to me and he starts uncovering this mystery of seeing himself back in like 1912 and basically he's trying he finds out that you could supposedly trick yourself through hypnosis as long as you remove all uh, trappings of the modern age and where you want to go, you could put yourself back in that time. And so he mm. puts on all of the clothing and everything appropriate and goes back and falls in love with this woman. And, you know, they have like the one night together and then something happens where they're, they're, they're saying something about his jacket being like out of fashion, like 30 years too old. And he's talking about how there's all these pockets on it. He pulls out a penny from like 1977 and then suddenly he's whisked back to the seventies and he's like away from his, uh, his his new girlfriend and he's just heartbroken and it, but it's the power of like desire and want uh, that if you want it bad enough you can have it and that's what this this feels very reminiscent of that. Um, yeah, it, it's been interesting uh, going through these episodes and seeing uh, dry runs of like Planet of the Apes for Serling and uh, Somewhere in Time and it, it's it's so interesting seeing these writers kind of find their uh, footing. Yeah. It, it, it's something, you know, in passing, watching Twilight Zone just on TV, not in order, um, probably it, you wouldn't catch on to things like that. It's just it's it's so cool to see, especially Serling, um, not so much, obviously, in this episode, but just seeing Serling find his footing and knowing what's to come with his career and everything. It's it, it's really interesting, especially Matheson, like seeing things I don't necessarily love for Matheson feels very strange. Yeah. <laughs> That's you know, it, it's it's just something uh, growing up and reading his short stories and everything. And like I Am Legend, um, it, it, it was just like you couldn't touch Matheson. And now like seeing these dry runs for his later works in uh, some of these episodes, it's it, it's bizarre. <laughs> yeah. I mean, considering like Matheson, like basically Stevie King says that I would not exist without Richard Matheson. You know, and it's that's like, what I mean. Yeah. And it, it's yeah. just, it's so weird to me seeing something like this. It's, I, I expected last week when we were talking about covering the second Matheson uh, teleplay, I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And I walked out pretty indifferent to it. Yeah. This one, other than like the, the directing, I mean, like the actors all did a good job. I'm not like, I credit to um, the, the, the main guy to play, uh, I forget his name, his, Howard Duff. Um, the credit to him because like mm. he could have he could have went he could have went really extreme one way or the other and he you know yeah. seemed like he seemed like a sane man trapped in an insane world you know and i he did a good job with that and then also um you know uh, was eileen uh, ryan again mm-hmm. i i think that she was she was a harpy but i don't think that was her only note and i think, yeah you yeah. could like you said the look that her and uh brinkley give to each other like there are moments of uh of goodness kind of shining through with her character yeah um but yeah howard duff as the main character i think he was fine 
it's it's hard because he doesn't have much to do with like it, it's a very one dimensional character. Well, he's he's like, never this Jerry is Reagan. Goal. Yeah. This is it. Make the same face the entire episode. Like, <laughs> it would have been great if you would, like if they would did something. And this is me rewriting it. I know I do this often. If they would have shown like some rushes from like a daily of like an earlier performance, and you see him being an ass on set, being like Jerry Reagan, to see like the dichotomy of the character. Like something like that to show that again. I think yeah. that answers too many questions, though, because <laughs> then because then you're yeah. finding out that Gerald Reagan does exist, and this isn't just some sort of weird dream or that's true, whatever. So uh, again, and again, twenty minutes. <laughs> I keep trying to spoon in too much reality into our fantasy here. I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, all right. So before we get to um our our twist meter, uh, did you have anything else like in regards to? The show itself, um, like no, I, I never even. I took a bunch of notes. And I never flipped my page over, so I didn't <laughs> read any of those. Um, yeah, I, I think we've pretty much got everything. Um, so I, I was trying to find something to connect to the, the episode because I like doing that. I mean, I also like we were just talking about maths and like I feel like just watching these episodes, just like if we just burn through them and I didn't do the reading surrounding like the discovery. I don't think mm-hmm. my appreciation would be the same, but that's why I like doing this. Um, but so I, there's a thing out there. It's not recognized by uh, medical professionals as an actual syndrome, but it's been acknowledged called the Truman Show delusion. I don't know if you know what that is or the Truman syndrome. I do not. Patients believe that their lives are stage plays, reality shows, or are being watched on camera. Uh, even the people that have come up with this diagnosis say that it's more just a, like a, just an offshoot of paranoia. So they're not trying to get this to be classified. They just that's just one more shade of this type of like just being paranoid. So yeah, um, there was was it usually affecting white males between twenty five to thirty four, which that sounds like a, like a target demographic. Um, one patient went to New York City after nine eleven to make sure the terrorist attacks were not a plot twist in his show. One patient believed that if he climbed the Statue of Liberty, that he would be released from his show. Like it's it's bizarre, like that we're getting in this age now where people think that they are the focus of like everybody's lives, you know. Yeah. And um, well, I mean, uh, you're pretty much on camera all day, so. But that's true. <laughs> I mean, between yeah. security cameras and stuff and uh, traffic cameras, you're on camera all day now. So I I can definitely see this becoming going that one step further and thinking you're being watched and people are watching you. Um, yeah. I guess I guess thinking that you're in a TV show or something is a little bit further, but yeah, I mean this just it was that's um, weird. I I had heard about it before, just I just from because like I you know I'll go on the internet and read Wikipedia until you know finding article and article and article, but this felt very like this as opposed to I mean this is kind of the opposite where the guy is part of a film production and wants to be a regular guy and doesn't know what's going on and here these people are regular people and they want and they think that they're you know and I can only imagine that this could potentially get worse with how easy it is to share your thoughts with your phone now, like Facebook live and YouTube. I mean, mm-hmm. Oh, they could only get compounded. So it's just interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, it seems, yeah. It definitely seems like some sort of uh, syndrome that would be enhanced with technology uh, changing so rapidly right now. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah that's, that's very interesting. And it's, it said, uh, I just looked it up just so I could see um, it was coined in 2008. So this episode is almost what <laughs> uh, nineteen sixty, so almost yeah. fifty years after. Well, and the funny thing about before, it, that's it's it's crazy. Is that the Truman Show actually the idea of that from that was sparked by a nineteen eighties episode of the Twilight Zone? I can't remember the name of the episode now, 
but there was one in there where someone was like constantly on a video feed being watched as they went through the day-to-day lives and that ended up sparking somebody to write the Truman show. So it's kind of kind of interesting how all comes full circle. Yeah, how Twilight Zone's kind of fed into this, but inadvertently, you know, but um yeah, I I just this is uh it's interesting it's also it's it's scary just because of how easy it is for people to slip into perception, you know, or or what what, what they believe is to be reality. You know, so but that's not the show. I don't want to get like I don't want to get into psychology cuz I'm not I am not qualified to talk about it. No, definitely <laughs> not me. <laughs> I'm qualified to watch Netflix and talk about it. That's all I'm qualified yeah, for. Exactly. All right. So, yeah, let's just get to the, the twist. I am generously giving this a two just because it starts off with the twist and it doesn't do much after that. Um, I, man, I, I was waiting to give it a, uh, twist rating until we talked about it because sometimes i write my twist down and we have a discussion and i feel way better or way worse about the episode <laughs> but uh i i think i'm going to agree with you i think i'm going to give it a two because i had never seen this one and it, when you hear the cut and you get that reveal of the wall disappearing and uh the whole production crew there it, it really was kind of jarring and but from that point on nothing really got to me no so uh, yeah I'll, I'll just give it a two like, like it, you said it's it, pretty generous but <laughs> it's unfortunate because when you read like when you flip through netflix and look at like the show descriptions episode descriptions it gives away like the crux of the episode in the sense of what jerry's struggle is and it's well like, it's it's impossible not to yeah and it's it's revealed in the first 30 seconds so that's true but i mean what i kind of I, I kind of wish i would have went into this one completely blind because at least then that had been like oh that's neat as opposed to i already know this guy thinks he's two people or yeah, struggling i usually with try it. not to read any of those synopsises or uh look into things i uh, next week's episode is uh written by charles beaumont so i always i always try and dig ahead a few episodes to see if i need to be hunting down any short stories or anything mm-hmm. so that's about the extent of my uh knowledge if it's something i haven't heard of yeah. going into them so uh, yeah so, just, yeah definitely definitely benefits from going in blind on this one so hopefully you watch this before <laughs> listening to our episode because everything is ruined and you're really not gonna like this one it's true uh, um so yeah i just it interesting idea i don't know what else you could have done with it in 20 minutes um yeah yeah it's like i said i was i was just kind of it it was just there for me (laughs) i didn't hate it it the episode went by fast um it wasn't like i was sitting there like looking at the the clock the whole time but um yeah it's just it's it's things we've seen already in the episode in the show um the visual flair, other than a few moments, wasn't really there for me, and that's a big thing for me. Uh, well, the showing yeah. of the crew working with the contrast of all the equipment and all the people, that felt really like that felt more organic than a lot of the sets that they use for the TV show because they're set, right? So, yeah. Um, and then a lot of stuff in the back, like when they're walking behind the scenes, like clearly that, that hopefully that wasn't a soundstage where it's like, shit, we got it. We got a soundstage. Let's just shoot behind it. You know, yeah. and I felt that felt very lived in, and I like that. That felt very yeah. That's yeah. what I mean. That part, and uh, yeah, that's really it as far as uh, visual. It was the the whole first five minutes in the studio and in his office. Um, but yeah, it was just, the episode was okay. Yeah, didn't love it, didn't hate it. Yeah, it. Sometimes I'll change my my viewpoint a little bit going back a second time. This one just kind of still felt flat. Like you know, other than other than checking for the camera cuts, which. 
I, I'm a I, I'm a nerd for that. Like if you could pull all that off in camera, that is just I mean I don't know. Why yeah, people, I, I went back yeah. and rewatched the first one. I didn't go back and see how they did that second one. That's why I missed the uh, um, the photo frame thing. Yeah, and and having something um, that's like 57 years old doing things then that people don't think to do now. I don't understand that. You know, where it's like <laughs> just plan it out. You'll have a way more dynamic shot. These guys well, did it on black and white television. You know. Well, if people if people do. You just got to find them. Uh, if you uh, get a chance to go see La La Land, all the musical pieces were all done in one shot, and okay. it is uh, mind blowing. That that, so, that that sounds awesome. Um, yeah, it's it's really impressive. It's just on a production level, <laughs> it's kind of uh, overwhelming. Uh, that was the other thing I was going to ask you actually. When he's in the office and he's trying to rush his wife out, does his chair disappear? Oh, I didn't even know. I didn't even notice to look for that. I that- rewound and it was it was kind of unclear whether or not because he turns and looks at his desk and he kind of gets a little bit more frantic about leaving his office. And uh, I, I'm thinking his chair disappeared. Man, that would be like a Philip K. Dick type move, you know, to have like seeing the reality start to kind of go away around you as you're trying to get out of there that that would be yeah yeah so i that might be something on a second watch All right. and i i could see i could see myself liking this episode a little bit more on a second watch i just, um, you, I just there, I was, there was a sound cue of the hearing the crew say all right guys we got to keep working and yeah that, this it, was yeah. before that because oh. i think he turned around looked at something and it was a shot of just an empty wall behind his desk huh and uh, I think his chair was gone. I think you're and right. And then as he's walking out, he starts hearing the voices, and they go even faster after that. So I'm if if that is the case, I do really like that too. <laughs> yeah, if that is the case, then I give the ending a little bit more weight. Um, you think I would have picked up on that because I, I usually go through shot by shot to find interesting things to put on the the Facebook page. And yeah, that one slipped right by me. I have to go back and check that out. That that's cool. Yeah, that's why I was hoping you would be able to answer that for me because <laughs> I, I, I was not. kind of unclear if that actually happened or if. <laughs> but I stopped it and rewound it, and I still couldn't tell what they were trying to show with this one shot. Hmm. And then I realized it was his desk, and I I think it was the chair was gone. Hmm. So well, there you I go. I think they're tearing down the set around them. You guys got to watch the episode again and then see what happened. I, I like that. Uh, so, all right. Uh, I think that's going to wrap up our talk about this episode. Uh, yep. Kevin, how can people get a hold of us? Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Strange Highways Podcast. Join in the discussion in there. Paul's always doing uh, great stuff, pulling some great images out of the episode and uh, way more witty than I am on there. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're in charge of that. <laughs> uh-huh. um, and then if you want to email us at strangehighwayspodcast at gmail.com and leave us uh, voicemails, emails, uh, we'll check them out, read them on the show. Let us know what you're thinking of the show. Let us know what you think of the actual Twilight Zone episodes. And then uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play Music now. Yes. And uh, if you want to leave us a review, it would definitely help out. That would be amazing. You'd be like, listen, I'll give you guys five stars, but a twist of two. I don't, I don't know what that means. Uh, so, <laughs> teasing next episode because I, uh, I did watch it already. Not, not to ruin anything. I'm just trying to work ahead a little bit. Um, speaking of things that old shows do that we don't do now, that will be an interesting discussion because there, there's something that happens in that episode that you can't do now. And I'm talking mm-hmm. from a technical standpoint, just because it doesn't make sense. But it was really, really cool how they did it. So that's yeah, my I'm excited. Tease. It's uh, written by Charles Beaumont, so I've uh, 
I've become a big fan of him <laughs> going through these and digging into some of his work outside of the uh, Twilight Zone. So I'm looking forward to it. It's called Long Live Walter Jameson. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, that, that will be uh, next time. Uh, until then, uh, be safe. Um, I don't know. If you end up if you end up being in a movie, just make sure that your life's good before you go rushing back to the life you have. I mean, you got to weigh your options, you know. <laughs> I I would I'd be like what's going on now like you know do I have money do you know I don't know I do I have a cool car maybe I should stay here that's what I was gonna say pick pick a better script to get lost in rather than just a <laughs> businessman going on vacation you know <laughs> yeah like what was what was I mean not the what was the movie about like just yeah, like oh I guess he's just happy to go see his daughter's birthday party or something. Uh, well, who knows what would have happened in uh, San Francisco? <laughs> that's true. This this movie was much like the number one film at the time, Home from the Hill, a 150-minute family drama is probably what it was. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll see you next week. All right. See you guys.